Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week is a hybrid bonus episode. I'm interviewing coach, keynote speaker, and mum of four, Jennifer Whitmer. But we're not talking about burnout or even being a mum. We are talking about our experiences of being a TEDx speaker. In March, Jen and I were both speakers at TEDx McMaster U. When we recorded this episode, our talks had been aired for the virtual event, but they were still not yet out on the TED YouTube platform. And we both had similar experiences preparing and recovering from our talk. If you've ever thought about doing a TEDx talk because you have an important message to share, we'll give you some really pertinent insights from our experience. But even if TED is not your journey, some of Jen and my experiences were more universal. What is it like to set yourself a goal and achieve it? And then wonder, was it worth it? And even when you do achieve something, what does it mean? One of my biggest lessons from doing a TEDx talk was wherever I go, there I am. It doesn't matter what I achieve. I still show up with my inner critic in tow who tells me I look awful and that I don't deserve to be there. So this episode is about more than a TEDx talk. It's about how do you prepare for and calibrate success. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm Jen Whitmer. I have four kids who at one point were all six and under, but who are now. (laughs) Uh, My oldest son is a freshman in college. My second son is a senior in high school. My oldest daughter is a sophomore in high school. And our youngest daughter is a sixth grader. I am married to my high school sweetheart. We're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary this year. So I am a speaker and a consultant and a coach, and I help teams and leaders work on solving conflict and personality clashes. I talk a lot about leadership self-awareness. I use the Enneagram as a personality tool to foster self-awareness. And we work a lot on communication and conflict resolution skills. Great. And we're going to today really focus on both our experiences of getting and delivering TED Talks. But just before we get into that, Tell us a little bit about how that career has intersected with being a mom of four. (laughs) Well, let's give the Reader's Digest origin story (laughs) or the Spark Notes. I just showed my age, Reader's Digest. Um, So I actually began my career in education. And honestly, I thought that that would protect my life as a mom. I always knew that I wanted to be a mom because we had quote unquote summers off. What I did not realize um, when I started my career in education is that you often still work over the summer. You just don't get paid for it. So which did not, wasn't always the best career choice, but even though I loved it, I adored it. I ended up having, after starting my career as a music teacher, I moved into administration and was a faculty leader and basically an assistant head of school and had a really 
awful boss, honestly, who was unskilled and created a toxic work environment that became untenable. And I left that pretty broken and unsure what to do because my children were in this place and I was leading in this place. And now I had lost this place, but my kids were still there. It was a really awkward, challenging situation. And I did a lot of introspection, understanding myself. What did I want to do? How did I want to help people looking back through what was I always complimented on? What did I always love doing in, in my life and realizing so much of that came back to communication, leadership, how to talk through things. And I started studying some more and became a a speaker because I wanted to help people and teams get along better. We spend so much time together at work that sometimes we're just a work group. We're not actually a team together that is cohesive where there's hope and belonging and trust. And the skills I wanted to help bring people were ones that my leader lacked. And I saw the pain of what happened. So that is how I ended up being a speaker in that way and consulting and coaching others on how to develop those leadership skills that make all of our relationships better, not just the ones at work. Right, exactly. And I so love that. So many of us have experienced something where we've struggled and we just don't want other people to have to go through the the same thing. So, so often we're motivated by that. Um, And so today we're going to talk about our joint experiences of doing a TEDx talk at TEDx McMaster U in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And um, I was so grateful to have Jen in Canada with me because we were both feeling and going through the same thing. And we we, um, went for a walk and we went to visit Niagara Falls. And we really went through an emotional roller coaster that week, which you'll tell completely. Yeah, we'll tell you a little about that. But what I realized is I, I was I was rec- recommended my my business coach said you must do a an episode on your TED talk. It's really important that you have a podcast episode on your TED talk. And what I realized when I was talking with Jen is I want people to realize this isn't just me. It's not just my craziness. <laughs> It was so comforting to me to know that we were going through a similar um, rhythm and process. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do this today a a little differently than the normal, whereas normally I'm focusing solely on my guest. Jen is going to also reflect back to me and say, okay, what was your experience of this? So we'll be going back and forth and sharing our our common and, and our different experiences of the same um, process and event. So Jen, first, why did you decide to prioritize getting a TEDx talk? So this is going to sound a little pie in the sky, but it's, I am the eternal optimist at heart and I love big ideas. And so TED has always been something I've wanted to do because of their tagline of ideas worth spreading. And I know that that is partially a marketing tagline, but it, it is resonating to me. Like this is the idea I want to spread. So that was the, the deep core motivation behind that. It was like, I have this idea that if more people know this, if more people understand how to have better relationships, because my Ted talk was about better relationships need conflict. If more people get that, I genuinely think that relationships will be better. Marriages will be better. Teams will be better. Friendships will be better. And we will live in a more peaceful world. 
I know that sounds really pie in the sky for an 18 minute talk, but <laughs> that is really what I wanted. Um, and so that was a big portion of it. And then just as a speaker and as a business model, there's part of authority building in having that TEDx brand association. So there was that business aspect of it as well. Um, I wasn't just going to do whatever I could do to get up there. Like, I'm just going to talk about nothing. Like it needed to be about the topic that I deeply care about, but the business of speaking and consulting, there is authority building that goes with that. And Ted provides some of that. So that's why. Great. Great. And I hope you can't hear my dog seems to be going crazy in the background, but <laughs> we'll carry on. So my reason for, yeah, I was going to say, what did, what was, cause I actually don't know this after we talked, I don't know why you decided to do this. So I had done public speaking since I was like 10 years old. Um, the boarding school that I went to, it was an UK um, prime minister. We have prime ministers there election and the school got to pick its own prime minister for the day. And so I did that. I, I as a 10 year old, I stood up in front of the whole school and gave the reasons why I thought um, I should be prime minister for the day for the school. And what was so interesting about that was like my older brother was doing it too. And he was representing the Scottish National Party and being all serious about it. And yes. I was the only one that didn't represent a political party at all. I like kind of broke the rule and said, I'm going to stand for prime minister. And for that day, we're going to have no school rules. <laughs> Spoken like a true 10 year old. <laughs> and so I, I, I had always done public speaking. So for me, the idea of being on the TEDx stage felt just comfortable to me because I, I love public speaking and I love being able to share a message and it's a, and it's a place where I would feel comfortable. In contrast, what I had experienced since leaving academia and literally I joined social media in 2021, January 2021. And <laughs> It was just so awful for me. I just found it such an uncomfortable place to be in. And I also feel that the self-promotion of being in a business and self-promoting is such an uncomfortable space for me. Whereas mm -hmm. I felt like, yeah, my message is so important. I want to get it out there. I feel like I could promote a TED talk. I would feel okay about telling people to watch it. Plus, you know, my understanding is once you've done a TED talk, people then do tend to search you out. Mm -hmm. That's that for me was part of it. If I could get an, to the tipping point where I'm not always having to chase and self-promote, but people get to know me and that way I can just focus on what I'm good at, which is behavior change and burnout instead of self-promotion and social media that those are not my best skills yes I agree I think one of the things that's that authority building piece of it's a little bit of a stamp of approval that does some work for me because I I don't I like social media when it is fun I do not like social media when it requires the strategy and all of that. I just want to go on there and meet people <laughs> or like, Hey, this fun thing that I did, what's the fun thing that you did? Or I read this and it was interesting. And you know, that I love, but the, the strategy I find exhausting at times and a similar way, like this can just get me down the road a little bit more to share that message. That's so important. Right. Exactly. So, and as listeners are going to hear, Jen is all about the fun. <laughs> So Always, if we, could, if we could have confetti, just imagine there's confetti around you. You don't even have to clean it up. Just there's confetti now. <laughs> so Jen, what process did you go through to land and prepare for your TEDx talk? 
Yes. It is not a glamorous story. I applied to many Ted talks to many. So TEDx is, um, a franchise experience. So every individual TEDx has to follow some TED rules, but there are some they get to choose on their own. That's unique to their specific place. And I applied to probably eight to 10 different opportunities, different TEDx opportunities in different places, always around this topic of conflict resolution and peace and how do relationships be better? Because that's the idea that I really wanted to talk about. Um, In that process, there was a lot of honing. Uh, Like when I first started applying probably a year and a half, two years ago, I didn't really have a talk yet. Like I didn't have, I didn't have the thing I was going to do. So because of that, some of my application wasn't very clear. I didn't exactly know what that is. So even the process of applying was clarifying like, oh, this is what I really want to say. Oh, even more narrow, even more clear. That's how that process worked. And this particular one One of the other things, so I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, and some places require you to be connected to the event, but not all of them. So I was applying to those types of places where you didn't have to have a connection to the, to the location. That's just important for people to know when you're applying for a TEDx, sometimes they'll just reject you because you don't live in Minneapolis, you know, and you're required to live there or whatever. By the time I applied for the McMaster event, I honestly was like, you know what? I don't need a TEDx. I just need to keep working, helping these event coordinators and leadership conferences and HR people train their people. Like, I just don't need to worry about it anymore. And I had a friend who was like, Hey, I, I found this one out and their theme is thrive. And I just think so much of what you do is help people thrive. Why don't you try it? And I was like, okay, it was, again, I kind of now had my pitch together. And by this point I had a much better talk. So I already had a talk that I'm giving as a keynote that I could pull apart and create in that Ted style, you know, it's Ted style is a slightly different than a keynote. And so I felt a little bit more confident, even in my abilities, in my pitch. And that's when I got accepted. And so, which was funny. I always hate telling like, I was about to give up and then it happened (laughs) because, but that it happened. That is actually what happened this time. Great. And, and I'll tell my story around that. And then I'll ask, uh, come back to that question a little bit about how you prepared for the talk is, mm-hmm. as well, because I think it's important, even yes. though you're a seasoned speaker and I've had lots of experience. We both went through a talk preparation process. of Absolutely. You know, and the process was a little bit different. Yeah. So when you think about how you got to McMaster, what was that storyline for you? Right. So <laughs> So my, I'll say, my, I don't know why I have to put this judgment on it. Mine's even worse. <laughs> so even more sort of Machiavellian is, is, is probably what I'm feeling here. So basically, I saw an advert for a company. I was watching a TED Talk and I saw an advert for a company that basically said, if you get a TED Talk, you will find people come to you. And I was like, I want that. I want that so much. So this company is called thought leader. It was pretty expensive to join this company, but they help you through the application process. You create an application template with all the typical questions that um, a 10x event might ask. Um, And 
that um, they then sort of gave you feedback on that application process. And I think two things for me, one, because I had been honing my message related to this podcast, Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, and my, my TEDx talk was about the similar topic, I had some of that messaging and honing already. And also actually the way I started the application process, one of the, th this thought leader has um, application support, it has an online course that you complete, and then it has group meetings that you attend either to do a talk practice or to talk about community and marketing and things like that. So in that online course, one of the exercises was if you get to the top of the mountain and you look back and see what would the world be like that you want. And that was such a helpful exercise for me because I said, what is the world I want to see without working mom burnout? And that was kind of how I started my talk with this vision. I mean, it, it definitely changed over time. But then I kind of reverse engineered myself into these applications thinking about, OK, here's the talk that I want to have. And so here's how I do the applications. So I actually did, and, and, and this company says that, you know, it can take you six to get a talk. It can also take you over a hundred. So the expectation was that you would maybe submit a hundred applications. And I think a lot of people go onto the TED website and they submit one application on the TED website, not even to a TEDx event, and then they get nothing back. And it's like, they then give up. And really it's, there are lots of events out there. And for me, definitely the, the McMaster event um, was the one I was most excited about because the topic was thriving and also as being organized by a, a public health community. So I figured they might value my public health perspective. And you had to do like a five minute video for it. So it was definitely one of the more involved ones, which was good because then you just weren't giving these generic responses. You, you were really able to give more of yourself in that process. And um, I really appreciated the video component of that. Right. Um, I feel like when you're hiring a speaker, I know this isn't hiring, but when you're organizing an event and you're selecting someone to communicate your content, it's not just the written word. It is who we are and how we express our ideas. And so I was thrilled that there was a video component. I mean, it was three minutes. It didn't, it was in, they were like, it can be on your phone. Like you didn't have to have video equipment. It, so don't get scared about that. But if you're going to get up on a stage, you communicating your message in a video is so much more effective. And I was thrilled that they had that option because so many of them are just, we review what you've written and then we make decisions and they don't even know who you are. In some ways there's benefits to that too, but I liked that there was a video. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it definitely was helpful because you could start to demonstrate some of your skills as, as a speaker. I didn't like the video part of it, but sure. getting a chance to share <laughs> bit parts of my story. Exactly. So actually, I applied to 57 and um, Ted McMaster, Edix McMaster U was number 38. And I actually also got accepted after accepting the, the McMaster one to another one, which was, I think, number 28 on my list so and I, I never ended up doing that one because the timing was just too too fast on it but yeah it, it, it is a little bit a numbers game so I wanted people to appreciate that that yeah. um, it's it, it's nothing about I mean it is about you but also it's about the match with them and you just have to find that and and it's they're looking at a group of speakers so it might be if you're talk is too much like someone else's they're not going to pick you mm -hmm. um so yeah 
preparing for lots of rejection, but not taking it personally. Absolutely. And I, I love the concept of they're building a program. Mm. And so like your talk may be a great talk and your topic may be a great topic, but it's, it doesn't fit with what they're doing. So like, so in Chicago people, if you put ketchup on a Chicago hot dog, people are going to think you're insane. They're like, that is not what you do. I'm from St. Louis. You're going to put ketchup on a hot dog. So it's nothing wrong with the ketchup. It's that it doesn't fit their culture. It doesn't fit their goals. It doesn't fit what they're wanting to do. And I think when we recognize things like that, it helps us keep going because we recognize it's not about me. When we start making up the stories of like, I'm a problem, I can't do this, <laughs> we get all slumpy, then we lose some of the perseverance that we need to keep going through all those rejections. Right, right, exactly. So tell me a little bit how you prepared for your talk, because as I mentioned, part of the, the company that I worked with, we had talk practice opportunities multiple mm-hmm. times a week, and I really took advantage of those. What was your process for practicing? Yes. So I have had a speaker coach now for almost two years and I started with Sally Z. I love my Sally Z. Um, I started with Sally in a program called the Signature Talk Studio. And that's where I first built um, the process of a keynote. Like, how do you understand how to put that together? I came from similar to you, the world of academia, except I was coming from Uh, you know, K-12 academics and teaching lessons. And there is a difference between teaching a lesson and giving a talk. And, um, and my other background was in teaching Bible studies and things like that. Also different than building a keynote. And so it started really there, starting to hone my message. And then once I, uh, once I found out that I had this TEDx talk, I needed to do something that wasn't my typical keynote because people are paying me to give that keynote. So they don't want to hear the same thing that everybody can just get. They want the exclusivity. So I needed to make it something special for Thrive and something that is on my topic, but different than what I deliver when I'm standing in front of um, a paid audience for, you know, to be clear. And I, so in that process, I really wanted to tell the right stories that was part of my process. And I worked with, I happened to be on a speaker retreat about a week after I found out that I had been accepted to the TEDx. And so we just workshopped, I had built something and I thought it would, and it was like eight minutes long. And we were like, what, what is, what is missing from this? What do you want to hear that in a TEDx talk that this doesn't have, which was such a helpful, and I had the feedback from my fellow coaches or my fellow speakers and my coach and started building the talk in that way. And so once I had that, I started kind of honing it and I had several lines I had to cut, which made me so sad. Um, (laughs) I was also really struggling because I wanted it to be like the seven minute talk is actually a great talk, but 18 minutes was hard for me because I'm used to like 30, 45 an hour or it is that like seven minute quick talk. So building that was actually a new, a new experience in some ways. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to make sure I had the right stories and that, right. What are you missing? And then honing it. And I worked with our TEDx had a really fantastic speaker training program. So I had a great speaker coach through TEDx. And so I took her advice and I worked with my coach and did a lot of 
standing up and saying it, standing up and saying it, not so much rehearsing. Uh, my speaker coach calls it getting it on your feet. So I would kind of write it on my feet. I would literally stand and like say it and write, and it helped it helps the creative process, but it also helps it get it integrated. So memorizing it wasn't really that bad because by the time I had finished it, I'd honed it so many times. It was just in my body, which was really great. Uh, so, and at the end I did a couple different, Hey, will somebody just show up on a zoom and be a friendly audience for me? So I had a few people who I did that a couple of times and had some great feedback of things that I was nervous about that they were like, no, this is what I took away. And that was really confidence building. Cause at the end of the day, honestly, people are not going to remember my beautiful words as much as I want them to, they're going to feel something. And so when I had the audience feedback is that's what they felt. Then I knew I had really hit the right mark in that preparation process. That's so good. And, and it is a lot of time and investment. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I didn't track how many hours I spent, but every day I walked the dog, I listened to a version of my talk and then I yep. would recite it myself in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I had used that technique when I was doing my stand-up comedy um, performance because I would listen to the the jokes and things that I was writing and obviously in class then we got feedback and you actually had to start recording your voice that was such an important part of that process we Mm -hmm. had to record our own voice in that comedy class and listen out for the the laughs and if on your recording you didn't get laughs you took that joke out it was just kind of (laughs) quite clinical really in the end Um, I'm just looking at how many versions I have here uh, on my voice notes of me listening to myself and I have six versions yeah recorded of different versions of the stock right in a month right it wasn't over years yeah yeah so my process was like six months and um I think I was on version 10 by by the end um Mm -hmm. and I would go to these practices weekly and often it was giving feedback to other people not always just me being the speaker and you just learn so much from that process what were other other techniques that people use I also took the opportunity to go to TED Women 2021 and mm. listened really carefully to the talks there for the, the best things. And one of the speakers had a most amazing analogy about um, public health being similar to how we now prevent fires and why don't we have the same mentality for public health? So I was like, I need an analogy. I need an analogy. And one other speaker at the end of her talk, she was like, what if, what if? What if? And I used that in mind. So I was borrowing these techniques. I also listened to that book, um, Talk Like Ted, which also has a lot of great ideas and, and talks about like having an analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, know, one of the things, other things. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I'm done. I was saying one of the things that I definitely, when I got feedback from Sally, one of the pieces of feedback I got from her and somebody else was to build a thread. And so the opening of my line is about some characters, I shall say. Uh, The opening of my TEDx is about some characters. And I bring those characters back. And I think in my mind, it needed to be some big thing. But when I actually wrote it, they were more offhanded comments. And it was just like, as this person probably wanted, blah, blah, blah. And then I could go on with my point. But it was enough to keep the audience knowing where they were in the talk and feeling like they were still involved. There's a little bit of that like inside joke within a talk. And that I think was really helpful in, and when I had my finished talks, 
and was doing those feedback rehearsals, people were like, I love that you kept bringing that up. Like I like, and that was like, and I was like, okay, that's the right thing. So analogies and threads, those are really important parts to building a cohesive talk that keeps the audience with you. And you're always wanting to keep them with you because that's how they get your message. Exactly. Exactly. And it's almost like the callback in comedy. It's exactly. the same technique. So yeah, I had I had like a cooking thread that came through mine. Um, but also interestingly, I got feedback at one stage from a single mom and she said my talk made her feel like a victim. And I went, oh no. I mean, that was the absolute opposite of what I wanted. I was trying to empower moms through this talk. So through that lens, I looked in it and I changed a lot of my language and mm. I shifted. And then my coach from McMaster was like, I want more lightness in your talk. I want you, you obviously love comedy. Let's bring some of that in. Um, so that was really helpful to me, not only just to lighten a fairly heavy topic, but also because of some of the emotions I was going to feel during my talk, when I knew in my head, I was about to transition to talk about my stand-up comedy experience it made me just be able to get over my heavy emotions more quickly and move on to that so um yeah I I think it's it's quite a process but it's, it is quite a process it's so, so one learning. of the things I'm so curious about how your experience went when it comes to the physicality of speaking like what are some of the techniques that you use to practice? Cause we can write something that is beautiful. We can feel the emotions, but we have to deliver it with our whole body. So how did you, how did you go about the physicality of speaking in your preparation? That's such a good question. And of course, such an important one for you because you are a very physical speaker. <laughs> so you and I, I had it. kind of different approaches. I actually kept trying to contain my hands at times. <laughs> which which I thought I don't know why I feel that need to do that every now and again to just center myself and hold on to my hands so that was something for me so that I could just come back to that place mm -hmm. but actually this comes from my experience of doing improv comedy I'm a very physical improv comedy person I, I just like to move around the stage I like to do physical funny things mm -hmm. so for me bringing my physicality to the stage was okay um, my coach gave me tips on rather than using my hands moving my hands together in a kind of left gesture right gesture and somebody described that as what a uh, um, Barack Obama did and it's almost like he's handing you the basketball and handing you mm. the basketball in a different direction so um, that technique was different that I hadn't used before and at one stage I'm like showing that I'm cooking and, and feedback from one of my fellow speakers in my group was basically like do that big because it was something I was doing quite early in the talk she said that's going to help you get into the physicality mm. of your talk if you Such make that big stir really early on so yeah that that definitely helped um but I noticed you and I were more of the the moving speakers in the group <laughs> yeah it's funny my so Avis the TEDx coach I was also doing like this crossed hand pulling my hands in together and I was realizing I was doing that so much she's like you 
you know, I want to encourage you to try to find another centering gesture essentially. And so I practiced having my hands at my sides, like as the neutral space, rather than this felt kind of protective and closed. And so that was her encouragement to me. So I'm still kind of working on that. I had to work on it. I don't know if I completely accomplished it in that TEDx, but it was a really helpful tip, like finding a neutral place that, so your audience can relax a little bit from all the things I'm going to talk with my hands naturally. I'm Italian. It just, is, it is what it is. Like that's just how it goes. Um, but finding a neutral place was good because you need that rest for everybody. And I hadn't thought about it like that. And then the other thing that was really helpful feedback that I got from my speaker coach, Sally, is that my feet needed to match what the rest of my body was doing. Cause I was doing this funny thing with my feet where it was the like from my ankles or my knees down my feet were kind of like oh I mean maybe kind of but the top part of me was like this is powerful you should do it and so it was confusing and so making my feet match and I realized immediately because I've done a lot of coaching and therapy why I was doing that because I was trying to make myself not be too much I was like maybe if I just do this little thing then it won't and, you know, like you won't think I'm too much in this process. And what it did, it made me look insecure and lacking in authority. And so it was kind of this struggle of like, oh, my feet have to match. And that means I have to really own what I'm saying, uh, which was an interesting thing. And it was really helpful to practice that, like planting my feet or moving with intention rather than kind of letting my foot kind of turn inward in that weird flirty ankle thing like oh maybe (laughs) since you can't see it I'm trying to describe it for a podcast but when you're speaking like I also am very physical but I think the importance of it all needing to match was a new concept for me that I thought was really helpful that's crazy I mean that level of detail that you got that feedback how fascinating and and also just that it's so part of this journey we're always going to bring ourselves into this journey and those insecurities that come in Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk then a little bit more um, about your message and how it does relate to the work that you're doing. Mm. So the message, the, the message of my Ted talk is that conflict is an opportunity and it is scary. I call myself a recovering conflict avoider. I would still naturally rather just exit stage left when there's conflict or put on another magic show next door so we don't pay attention to the conflict. Either one of those things works fine. Um, But what happens is that destroys things. It doesn't actually solve the problem. And so a lot of them of my Ted talk is, is setting up that idea of how do we reframe conflict as an opportunity? We all kind of know that conflict is something, but we don't know what. And so I was framing up the idea of we're getting worse at conflict. Like there's all these studies that show that our conflict resolution skills are are becoming um, less effective. And because the outcomes of the lack of conflict resolution are people, relationships are dying, all kinds of workplace issues, you know, our governance, all of those things are becoming a problem and they're growing. And so how do we see conflict as an opportunity as as a way through to better relationships and better peace rather than the block 
to better relationships and peace. And so that was the, the main message of the talk. And that is the work that I help people do. And in my, in my speaking, I call it the $668 billion opportunity because that's how much it costs us every year in America. In fact, it's gone up since then that we spend about three hours of time a week managing conflict. And that's a huge amount of time. And and you multiply that by like average salaries and number of workers, we get up to 668 billion. It's huge. And that's the work I want to help people do. And it's so skills-based, but we have to get over our fear first. Like we can't develop the skill because we're just so scared of what's going to happen in the conflict. It's so rooted in our family of origin. It's rooted in our first workplace experiences and it's rooted in the current culture that we work through. So I'm always helping people take that idea that how do I reframe this conflict as a way to get to a better solution rather than this conflict is the thing that is blocking me from the better solution. Right. I mean, your talk is kind of the name of your podcast. So how did you decide what you were going to share? Like, what is your message in this? Right. And, and I definitely struggled in terms of I wanted it to be enough about behavior change so that people could actually action the advice I was giving. But I think mm-hmm. like what you are saying in your situation is, to be honest, the TEDx is really about giving you the idea, helping you get over the fear. And then people have to work with you personally to be able to develop the skills because you can't really develop skills in a talk like this. It's right. It's not, yeah. I mean, like at the end, I gave really high level ideas about mm. some questions you can ask that are really big concepts, but you're right. It's hard to develop skills in an 18 minute talk. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I, I was kind of struggling with that. And the other piece was, even though, you know, I focus here on overcoming working mom burnout and my talk is about working mom burnout. I really, really wanted to engage everybody in the process because, you know, moms themselves aren't going to be the ones to solve this. I really tried, wanted to try and reach out to CEOs, to managers, to politicians, to dads, um, to, to, you know, people who aren't parents to think about what is it about society that we can do to change. Um, And again, you know, my approach from this public health perspective is is also that we need multi-level. So I was trying to talk Mm -hmm. about the individual, institutional and cultural change. And of course, as soon as you start to talk about more than one thing, it's like, how the hell do you get it all into this one talk? And I kept getting feedback about that, like, just talk to the mums, you know, forget the other stuff. And I was just like, but then nothing's going to change. So that was probably what my biggest challenge here on this podcast. I'm very much like, yeah, we're mums. And, you know, I might do a season with dads because I actually interviewed one lady who has done a lot of work around job sharing and she's interviewed a lot of dads. And she said it just opened her eyes to the struggles they mm-hmm. face. So, so I think I should step more into that as well. But um, yeah, I was really trying to broaden the appeal of, my message. So um, that was, I think you did a great job with that. Like I really appreciated the inclusivity, but I also honestly, because I also believe in what you're saying, that it's a multi-level solution, that it would, it would be a disservice to only talk about just one part of it without even alluding to the fact that this can't be the only way. You at least have to give something that says this is a component of a larger solution. And I think you did that beautifully without it being confusing. Thank you. And without it being overwhelming, because you don't mm-hmm. want people to come away from a talk 
<laughs> Talk Which, on burnout, feeling overwhelmed. Feeling burnt out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what were your biggest challenges in this journey? And what did you learn about yourself and about speaking? Like what mm. were the new things you learned in this experience? It's such a great question. I learned a couple things. One is you can know that something is coming, but you still have to experience it. And what I mean by that is I know that there is a cycle to building and creating anything. So any creative process, if you work on a project at work, if you are a writer, if you're building a talk, if you're creating a course, if you're remodeling a kitchen, any creative process, there is a part where you're like, the world is trash. Everything is trash. I should just give up. <laughs> like there's, there's, that is just part of the deal. And, um, I knew that was coming and it happened about a week, happened about a week and a half before recording time. I was like, this is dumb. I should just start over. And <laughs> like, I always forget that I have to actually go through that experience, not just know that that experience is going to happen. And so that was one thing that I was reminded of. After the talk, I was not expecting the kind of doldrums that happened. I knew enough to know that I would be tired, like just the, the adrenaline. So both of us had to travel overseas. I actually had a trip right beforehand. I didn't even leave from home. I'd already been gone from home for almost a week. So there's that adrenaline travel, getting into Canada, all of the stuff. And so I knew that I would need a physical rest the next day. I was really thrown off guard by the kind of post-talk doldrums. D depression feels like too strong of a word, but it was very like, uh. <laughs> and I wasn't, I just wasn't prepared for that to last longer than quote unquote, the adrenaline crash the next day. So after any big event, there's always like the next day, you just need to lower your activity level. And I think it was, Wednesday afternoon, I was just still like, oh, okay, whatever, which is not me. I mean, y'all been on this podcast with me for 45 minutes. You've already figured that out. And, and I was, and that's when I sent you a message. I was like, do you want to go do something? Do you, you want to go to Niagara Falls? Let's go, let's go do something. And that trip, the two of us on Thursday afternoon was such a blessing. Like I, needed something fun. I needed something that was different. And just to kind of pull me out of those, those doldrums a little bit. And so that was a new experience. And it continued when I was talking to one of my author friends, she's written about four or five books. And she said about week two, after a book launch, everything kind of falls apart. And so that's just also part of the process. Like I knew that there would be a part in the process of before I didn't realize it would be after. And I kind of had this revelation that the ramp up, you know, like however steep the ramp up is, will probably be the step, the level of steepness. I don't know how you say that, but the same steep on the way down. I'm like, Oh, like that was, that was surprising to me. And I think the importance that we put on TEDx, like in some ways, it's a really big deal. In other ways, it's just another talk, but it's really a big deal. Like, and I, I think I was not anticipating the amount of recovery I needed after that, because I like speaking, like it gives me energy. Why would I be surprised by that? Like that part's so much fun. And I think the other thing is 
I knew that I was disappointed that it was going to be a hybrid event. I didn't, it's just like, I knew that I was going to experience a, a drip. I didn't have to go through it. Oh yeah. You have to actually do the experience. I experienced the disappointment and I wasn't anticipating that emotional, like, oh, I'm disappointed. This wasn't the way I wanted. I thought I'd gone through that already, mm. but I hadn't. Um, and so I think those were some of the surprising, surprising things that I learned and that that's all normal. Like that's mm-hmm. a normal part of a, of a creative process. It's a normal part of a large event that goes that way. And it was just really helpful to know that that's normal. That's great. I love that idea of the ramp. So you're mm-hmm. saying I'm going to fill on these doldrums yeah. for the next six months. <laughs> I don't know about six months. Maybe well, it was like a six was... month ramp for me. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's the, the incline. I don't know, Mm. because mine was definitely a solid full tilt, three week, four week process because I had applied and we didn't find out. It was about six weeks from when we found out to when we recorded, it was a pretty fast turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was such a like ramp up that I think the steep ramp down surprised me. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And And one of the things, yeah. Um, I think again, that, that stress of getting there, I kept feeling like I had no control over the facts, you know, what if my PCR test came back negative? Um, and you know, I've traveled so much all my, my life and never felt that stress. And I think it just was that signal to me, this means a lot to me. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as you're saying, wanting to go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of such an interesting process there. And one of the things you said to me that I thought was so helpful when we were walking at one point was we're out of practice, even Mm. though both of us are experienced travelers traveling in this particular time in history, post COVID ish, we're out of practice. And that was just really helpful to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was still making edits the week before and I was frustrated at that that but they were they were improvements they were absolute improvements so I was grateful for that feedback and that I decided to action it um but that was just sort of fr- frustrating to me mm-hmm. spent having spent so long working on it that I was still making edits towards the end and then um I think the biggest thing that happened to me was the Friday night. So we recorded on the Sunday. We spent the week in Hamilton. And then the following Saturday, they aired it as a hybrid event. And we did live Q&As with that. And there was a live MC. So the actual event was like such a surprise, wonderful thing on Mm -hmm. the actual day. But that night, Friday night, I went to bed and I felt ill. I was like, I am such a fraud. And when I said that to like my husband and a couple of friends, they were like, oh, it's imposter syndrome. I was like, it's not. I've worked so frigging hard to get here. This is not imposter syndrome. For me, it was, what am I doing complaining about my life? My white, educated, privileged life. I just felt so uncomfortable about that. But I think then once I actually heard it and saw people's comments and they're like, we so need to hear this story. So even though my story is still a story of privilege, it's a story of struggle. Mm -hmm. And if I'm struggling, then definitely other people are struggling too. So um, I I did definitely, even though we didn't get that audience, um, you know, interaction that we wanted, 
even meeting some of the students afterwards and they were young students who said to me oh my goodness you remind me so much of my mom and I see that my mom won't take a break and they're like I want to go hug her I want to go thank her and what can I do to give her permission to have a break and what can I do to help her so even those few encounters like that made me go okay okay Mm -hmm. it was worth it but that was a group I did not expect to reach and impact so that to me was like the little start of like the the firework going off in my Mm -hmm. head the confetti like you mentioned that was like a little confetti and then obviously once it comes out on TED we've got a lot to do still to promote these talks and things but hopefully we'll feel that energy then it is a delayed gratification maybe right it is. And one of the things that I, you know, whenever you get up in front of a group of people, it's a risk. There's always a risk, even though both of us, that's a fun risk. It's always a risk. And then adding the travel to that, adding just the different components, you know, taking courses, having coaches, you know, all of that is investment in a, in a risk. And I realized that I'm in the middle of knowing that was the right um, risk to take but before the payoff comes and I'm just stuck in that place. And I hate that place. Um, I mean, maybe there's somebody who doesn't mind it, but I don't know people who do, but like that is an uncomfortable place of having made all the investment and I just have to wait. So much of it is out of our control. Um, And even when it comes out, we can only do so much for it to be the event that we want it to be and managing those expectations. But right now it's just, waiting it's waiting and I found that really uncomfortable like in the middle of the risk right I I agree yes this delayed gratification we don't yet know the benefits that it might have and those benefits could take years I mean it could be like five years time somebody comes back to us and says oh my god your talk changed my life Mm -hmm. and so yeah we we won't necessarily know that straight away but I think that's just the perfect cue to say I'm going to have to have you back (laughs) so that we can go, oh my God, this happened because of it. That happened because of it. Because, you know, I I think we are, we're presenting a very realistic scenario or or our experience of this is worth doing, but it's a challenge Mm -hmm. and we still haven't quite got the whole payback worth part of it in there. So, you know, if people are listening, they might not be going, oh yeah, that's totally worth me doing. So (laughs) we are definitely going to have to have a follow-up to say, this is why it was worth it. Anytime I get to have a conversation with you, I am happy. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for you, Jen? Just tell our listeners anything that you're working on and how people can reach you if they've heard something today that they love. So yeah, jenwitmer.com is the best place to find me online. I play the most at LinkedIn and Instagram. Those are my places I have. I have a Facebook group called the Women Leaders Circle, if people are interested in that. I have a course actually called How to Have Hard Conversations, which is a small online course to help you communicate effectively when it's the hardest. And that's in those hard conversations. And it's a extension, I guess, of my talk, which is why communication, you know, why conflict matters and that's important, but then how do we do that? So the course is a little bit about how you do that. And I have a couple big keynotes coming up and I'm excited about sharing the messages 
of conflict is opportunity and sustainable leadership with several really big organizations coming up. And I'm excited about, about those things. But if you're listening, I would just love to connect with you and I'm all, I can't help it being a teacher and a coach. What did you take away from this? So maybe you're like, I always listen to Jacqueline because I'm about working on burnout, but I don't ever want to give a Ted talk, but I bet you learned something. So I'd love to just know, you know, like send me a DM, shoot me an email, find me and say, here's what I took away that applies to my life. I would love to know. Oh, that's so great. That's such a good call to action. And I, I, you know, I struggle with conflict and I came away from your talk feeling so dang positive about it. I mean, your energy and your message, because it is a hard thing. So I do believe you got me through that fear. And Mm. I think that's so great. I'm so glad it's you working in this space because I agree so many people struggle with it, but your energy and your thoughtfulness and, and just your fun and joy attitude towards everything you do. I think that just makes us go, right, let's get in and work at this other thing. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Please view Jennifer and my talks on YouTube or contact me through my website, drjacquelinecurr.com, and I will send you the link for my talk and for Jen's talk when it is released. And as Jen requested, please let us know what resonated from this episode. What did you learn? I also have a question for you. Do you like my approach to behavior change? Could it help your company have more success with its programs to support employees? Do you offer change programs to companies? but you're struggling to demonstrate their return on investment, maybe I can help. I can look at your program and see what behaviors it is changing and how. Often we struggle to target the key behaviors that will result in the change we want to see. Or if we do understand the target behaviors, we don't know how to set up the support systems to create successful change. I can provide an evidence-based approach to your work from my over two decades as a behavior scientist. And I can also help you evaluate your program, measuring the behaviors that are best matched to the content and effort you're providing, demonstrating your return on investment. I expect you have great ideas, know what needs to change, and are passionate about helping others change. But you might still be struggling to see change in action. I would love to support your behavior change programming efforts and set you up to succeed. Please contact me through my website, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control your affairs.